this recording was originally made to audio tape and converted to digital format. Go up, it's called Acuity. It's by a parishioner who comes at Christmas and Easter. <laughs> by his own admission and confession, uh, which is not true, he's here regularly, but he's about religion the way I am in a way. Uh, he doesn't want to ever be accused of it. Aside from the wonderful photographs, he has framed esoterica, which you need to study and look at carefully. Um, it's self-explanatory, but not easily so. And so I commend to you this exceptional show. It's a sinistral show, but it's a good show. It means left-handed. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, the artist is with us today. And so I, with great pleasure, uh, commend to you this show and introduce to you Marshall Wilson. Marshall, will you stand up, please? Marshall asked me to announce that everything here is for sale, including Marshall. How are we doing? Are we doing any better or worse? Uh, Richard for poor, how are you back there? Richard, can you hear? No. Just turn it up for a bit. I spoke last week about the virgin birth, and I know that uh, I will rehearse that a bit, but this, today, uh, not one person has asked me about the virgin birth. Uh, nobody has encountered me about what is my Advent message or what is it the expectation and apprehension that we experience in Advent, but most people have asked me what I think about the trade. <laughs> I went to the Golden State Rockets game a couple of weeks ago with my 11-year-old, God be my witness, uh, I said to him, I think we ought to have Sleepy Floyd instead of Samson. <laughs> In case you don't know, the Rockets traded Ralph Sampson last night for Sleepy Floyd. And that's been the most asked question this morning about what I thought about that. And uh, what I think about it is that uh, it's going to be good for the Rockets. Um, we finally have somebody who can not only bring the ball down the court and get 10 assists a game, but we have somebody who can bring it down the court under control. <laughs> a level could get it down the court, penetrate, but then... He played at Oklahoma City University. <laughs> but then five out of ten times, the assist would be to the ball boy under the basket. So I'm pleased about the trade, and I think it's probably going to be good for Ralph, too, to make a 7-4 human being, a power forward, was probably not possible. I agree with Cunningham yesterday in his analysis, who said 
that uh, the potential Ralph was to live up to, he has. And so I think it's good that he can play with his back to the basket now and be an authentic center, which he was probably born to be. Uh, and uh, we have Sleepy Ford, and we're on our way to the playoffs. So those are my... Now, secondarily, the Bible. <clears throat> we're in our Advent series, and we are making a turn now because we're halfway through. We are like a twined rope, the two threads being uh, the one of X. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about the fact that Mary is the symbol of birthing new things, and John is a symbol of breaking old boundaries. And as we begin to anticipate, we do so with apprehension, for we know that birth requires death, that we die uh, to the garden womb in birth, and that the new life will require a death. And we begin to get anticipatory about that, but, but apprehensive, for we know that something dies in order for something to be born. And in terms of John being the symbol of breaking new boundaries, we realize that those old wineskins of the law, the old wineskins of that exclusive religion of the Pharisees, uh, was not strong enough to hold the wine whose time had come. And so we know that breaking boundaries as symbol, in fact, in our own lives, is something about which we are uh, anticipating excitedly while at the same time dreading, for the unknown for human beings carries the greatest fear. Now, last week we talked about how it is that we can talk about basketball and go to the game by tens of thousands, but on an Advent journey we don't want to really hear about it because there's an implication that we have to take it personally. I gave you the option of that you didn't have to take this verse personally if you didn't want to. That's what most of us have chosen to do through our lives about either Christianity or uh, being born again, whatever that means for you. There's a sense that we take it personally. And then I went on to say that I am pleased with the virgin birth because it is one of those stumbling blocks for us that we must every year either walk around, uh, step over, or deal with. And that there are many ways and kinds of soft, more philosophical argument to talk about spontaneous gestation, uh, to talk about the fact that in the Scripture maybe it really just meant young girl and it didn't mean virgin who had not yet had intercourse. I concluded that at least for us we probably won't know, and I God's name be praised, that mystery is still available to us, that we probably won't know. But what we do know is that we read the story this year is that the insemination of God through Spirit to birth in us something new is between God and us personally. And there is no third party for that. That ultimately we have to decide, are we willing to be inseminated by this kind of truth? Now, we don't do that generally because we know that to be inseminated with something new, a new life, that it's going to break the waters. 
It's going to cause a birth where we will be cut free from the umbilical cord of dependency, and we will have to be responsible for our own life drawing, the breath of our own system. And so we stay plugged into old habits and old patterns only because they are known and because we fear the death that comes from the new birth. Same with boundaries. And so most of us, present company included, would rather race ahead of the Advent dread and dream of a white Christmas and not deal with the psychological, spiritual implications of an Advent anticipation. And are you willing, I said last week, to be inseminated with the truth that something will be born in you, something new, never before, that some emerging quality, some emerging relationship, some emerging responsibility, some emergence of breaking of an old habit or an old pattern, that that annual rehearsal of Advent is the time to consider that. And most of us just as soon not take it personally. And I concluded that if you want to remain mediocre, that's fine, because mediocre people are always at their best. <laughs> now I want to talk uh, today about what do you mean uh, being inseminated with the Christ being born in you? What does that really mean? Well, I will go about it as I usually do in a circuitous manner and begin with John's quotation, which is in the Gospel today, uh, beginning, of course, with the Lucan account of the extraordinary events of John's own birth, and that is the Zachariah story and the Elizabeth story in Luke, which I commend for your reading. And if you remember when Mary came to visit her cousin Elizabeth, uh, the child within her womb leapt, which was John the Baptist to be born, so that we know that John the Baptist began to hear a call genetically to be some exceptional human being. At great cost, all it cost him was his head. Exceptional cost to be what you're called to be. Now, well, the reason it's exceptional is because once we bear the birth canal, there are a proliferate of voices calling us and telling us what it is that we're to be. You're to be a good girl. And while we know resting within each of us uh, is the dichotomy of personalities with the dark side looming ever and making itself known like the little girl with the curl. I am a good girl, but you remember her with the curl in her forehead when she was bad, she was horrid. And we know that side of our own selves. And so we have voices calling, be a good girl. You're a good boy. And while at the same time we experience part of ourselves that is darker than we're allowed to share in the light of relationships, and it remains repressed. And what do we do with that side of ourselves? It's a costly thing to repress, but even more so to become aware, to break old boundaries and to birth new understandings. And so it was with John that he became an exceptional human being, not terribly popular, and described probably best as crazy. How many of us are ultimately willing to be fools for Christ? I've only touched my toe into that cold water, 
But I tell you, it really will take your breath away trying to be a fool for Christ. I do it in a conservative suit with a collar. But if I was really a fool for Christ, God knows where I'd be living or what I'd be doing. I mean, it is an incredible call, and most of us don't either receive it or we plug our ears and not hear it, and I expect for good reason. Now, I'm going to circle around about this Christ being born in us by telling a bit of a shop-worn, nostalgic story, but I think uh, one worthy of retelling, for it does uh, make not only a confession that was familiar to the traditional story, because it comes from John in our gospel today, because it might free you also to have a confession of your own uh, with another side of your consciousness. In John's gospel, he talks about himself, uh, he talks about John the Baptist, that is, in John's gospel when he says, this is the testimony which John gave when the Jews of Jerusalem sent a deputation of priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He confessed. He didn't deny. He just confessed. An interesting concept that he confessed. He confessed without reserve and avowed, I am not the Messiah. What then are you, Elijah? No, he replied. Are you the prophet we await? He answered, no. Well, then who are you then? That's an incredible question to be asked. Who are you? We must give an answer to those who sent us, said the Pharisees. What account do you give of yourself? These are hard questions. Are you the Christ? Who are you? What account do you give of yourself? He answered in the words of the prophet Isaiah, I'm a voice crying aloud in the wilderness. Make straight the Lord's highway. Some Pharisees who were in the deputation asked him, If you're not the Messiah, you're not Elijah, you're not the prophet, why then are you baptizing? I baptize in water, John replied, but among you, though you do not know him. There's another translation of the word in the Greek for among you or in the midst of you, and that is within you. John replied, but among you or within you, though you do not know him, stands the one who is to come after me. I'm not good enough to unfashion his shoes. This took place at Bethany beyond Jordan where John was baptizing. Who are you? Are you the Christ? What account do you give of yourself? No, I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. But there's one who is to come within you, within the midst of you, that you do not know. Now, some of you know I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma. <clears throat> it was a tradition in the small church in which I grew up to have an annual Christmas pageant. An evening, 
where the children would sing in group-graded choirs, that is to say one group, each of us in our own grade, probably amounting to 15 or 16 singers. There would be uh, some kind of Santa Claus, Holy Family, and Bing Crosby in a wearing blender, all mixed together and confused. It's so confusing for me that for a long time, I say by confession and as a part of this story, for a long time, the whole idea of Santa Claus coming and Christ coming was not confusing for me. They were one. As you know, I spent my early formation years in terms of development of my own spiritual life in a basement room in this small church in this small town in Oklahoma under the tutelage of the a great local theologian, Miss Plexico. Remember, she was the one that wore the turban and the orthopedic shoes. And she would lead us in Jesus. Loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And if you didn't stand still and sing, she would pinch you. Jesus loves me, as I know. <laughs> Before the Bible tells me so, she had us get up in, in, in cadence. And she would say, children rise. And she would say, one, two, three. And we would get up. So my early spiritual formation from Mrs. Plexico was a kind of contradictory message of God loves you without condition uh, as long as you stand up straight and don't talk uh, and sing loudly. Well, when I was in the fourth grade, I graduated into a new group, and that was taught by Jim Formby, who was the FFA teacher at Drumright High School. Um, his real expertise, as I remember it, was an interesting description of the nature of the animals uh, who were at the crest scene, which I've always found very helpful in my spiritual formation, and to know the nature of the donkey and what it is that he lives on and feeds on. I guess what I'm trying to build for you is that my early spiritual formation uh, was by intuition rather than uh, by any didactic uh, work uh, from the local theologians. Now, some of it, like my early sex education, was accurate, and some of it was not anywhere near uh, what my older brother had told me was going to be so. 
I suspect that this is something of the religious journey of all human beings, and that is that in spite of our early origins, we uh, still claim to a remnant of faith that's been revealed to us in spite of teachers and priests uh, who have their own darkness that they're dealing with. Anyway, there was annually that evening, my guess is a Sunday evening for some reason, before Christmas that we would gather at the church house for the children to sing. There would be some adults in the, the appropriate uh, bathrobes and fake beards acting out some manger scene probably directed by Mrs. Formby. Uh, she taught drama at Drumright High School. And then, kind of on the heels of the singing and the reenacting of the Christmas pageant, then would be Santa Claus would come. Now, all of that somehow got blended together into one experience of uh, confusion and joy. Now, there was a character named Mr. Betts who was the sexton at the church. It was one of the... Um, meanest men that I've ever known. He was the kind that uh, uh, had a, a countenance uh, that looked like he knew what it was that you were thinking and that it was wrong and that you shouldn't be thinking that in church. He just looked at you and you'd have that about your own self. One time Chuck Watson and I were up playing the piano in what was known as the parlor, and Mr. Betts came up there because we were disturbing uh, the Susanna Wesley Gills. And when he came to run us out of the parlor, I had the feeling that, that we'd been driven out of the temple by some reincarnation of the angry God. Uh, Chuck had another statement about Mr. Betts, which I won't share with you today. Entirely <laughs> different image. Had to do with Mr. Betts' family of origin. <laughs> Mr. Beth put signs up everywhere, and they all began with don't. <laughs> don't put coffee grounds in the sink. Those kinds of signs all over. And Mr. Betts walked around the church, and he was retired from something else and kind of took care of the church. Well, one of the ironies was that every Christmas Eve, once we had done the singing, my brother and I... Uh, always had to sing in the little choir. Uh, my brother sang well and I loudly. Um, and he would, and somewhere in the midst of the singing, ask me to tell me quietly to shut up. What was it? <laughs> A long time I thought that must be that I had three names. Pitt, shut up. <laughs> my brother called me for years. Somebody, I don't remember who it was, would 
always after we had had the Christmas pageant, would say, do you hear him? And of course the children would all say, no. Well, you have to get quiet and listen very carefully. Do you hear him now? No. Well, if you get very quiet and if you're very good, you may be able to hear him. And then we would hear, coming out of the basement of the church, a faint sound of bells. And somebody would be planted to say, I hear him. And we could hear him coming. There were a couple of ironies. One for me was that I really had always thought that Santa Claus uh, or Jesus would be a sound that would be descending from the heavens. This was always a sound that was <laughs> ascending from the depths below. sound of the bells would get louder and louder as this unknown figure that was to appear uh, ascended the steps ringing the bells and then come out of the parlor which was behind the sanctuary and it was Santa Claus. Well, the irony, the second irony, aside from the fact that, that Santa Claus, nay Jesus, came from the depth up. The other great irony was Santa Claus was Mr. Bet. <laughs> Mr. Betts would come carrying a kind of a laundry bag and was full of those mesh stockings like you get onions in, those mesh, and these were stockings, and he'd pull them out and, and they were stiff because all of the candy had melted together and <laughs> was kind of stuck in that, that red mesh. The other thing that was a little bit of a contradiction about Santa Claus was he would come in carrying this laundry bag full of melted and stale candy stuck in red mashed stockings. But when he would come up and, and rather than giving by his ambience and countenance suffer the little children uh, to come unto me and forbid them not, uh, the small child would rush toward me and he would say, Get away! Here comes my Johannine confession. In spite of all this confusion and contradiction about the meaning of Christmas, from Mr. Plexico to Mr. Formby to my own existential experience of Christmas in a small town and a small church, I got a message <laughs> that came to me in the midst of all of that, and it was in the expectation of the uh, 
coming of whatever it was that was to come, about which we were to be excited, several conclusions. One was uh, that it was never quite what we expected it to be. The two is it came from a direction that was not the expected direction. But here's the worst part, or the best part, is that I have a confession to make, that it occurred to me when I was about six, and it was recurring for a number of years. And that was that I got either implanted within me through the Bible stories or through the uneducated guesses of Miss Plexico and Mr. Formby, or from something archetypal within me that just emerged, that there was to come the Christ. And that Christ had been born in Bethlehem, which was the beginning of the story, but the story wasn't over because Christ was to come again. And that every Christmas then we had an expectation that Christ would come again. I had that. I just knew that. In spite of all, maybe in spite of myself. And here's my confession. It occurred to me when I was six years old that I might be Jesus. What if? What, what if this time I'm He? My sense is, just a guess, it occurred to you at some point. What if? What if? Now we're beginning to touch upon the theological experiential reality of what it means to be human at Advent. What if? you are the Christ? What if I am? The story says that the Christ will be born within you. In order to relieve the corporate anxiety which is palpable in the room at the consideration of the fact that either you have to wrestle with the fact of whether you're the Christ or not, or be responsible for the insemination of the Holy Spirit within you that Christ will be born, let me tell you, it's okay. It is okay. Because they came to John and they said, Are you the Christ? I don't think you can go on in your spiritual journey. I don't think you can become a human being. I don't think you can become an adult. I don't think you can pass on into eternity, past history, unless you answer that question. And if you've never answered that question, uh, then you have in store for you the greatest relief that can come to a human being. Are you the Christ? Well, I wrestled with that for a number of years, a long time. 
I have a residual of question every year, maybe by memory, but also by expectation. I went to a graduate school of theology and was ordained in apostolic tradition working out this question. And I now have a confession to make to you. I am not he. Oh, you don't have any idea what a relief it was to me when I realized I wasn't. And it's made all the difference. It's made all the difference in the world. I don't have to be the Christ. It occurred to me at one time. I now have received a clear message. The jury is out, and they come in, I am not the Christ. Well, the next question then comes, who are you? And what account do you make of yourself? I've just given you the agenda for the rest of my life. Who are you and what account do you make of yourself? I close with a couple of reflections about my own experience, which I think is a kind of living metaphor for you as you begin to answer these questions. Are you the Christ? Who are you? What account do you make of yourself? And two, the question I asked you last week, are you willing to have the Christ born within you, be intimidated by God and the Spirit, realizing something new will be born and the old boundaries will be broken? Let me just say a couple of things about that. That what happens to me when I begin to think about this is that gnawing sense in me of the dark side of me that makes me unworthy to be considered the Christ or the unworthiness for the Christ to be born in an imperfect me. Well, the good news is this, that God is so anxious to be incarnate, to be birthed in us, that he will use just anything that we will offer. It doesn't take perfection. As I said on the bulletin this week, if perfection were required in order to be Christian, we would not have any Christians. That perfection is not a requirement for the journey, it's its goal. If I was perfect, I would either be Jesus or I wouldn't need Jesus, both of which are inflated heresies, but they're preposterous conclusions if I think that I have to be perfect. So you don't have to be perfect to be who you are or to make a count of yourself or for Christ to be born within you. You don't have to be perfect. I know from experience. Because God attaches God's self to anybody who's willing to offer himself in the name of Christ. Anybody. Anybody. Even Miss Plexico. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible told me so, but you know who told me? Miss Plexico. The pinch made me realize that human beings are conditional, but God isn't. Mr. Formby, I mean, all he knew to do was talk about the animals. That's all he knew, and he gave his best. I've never forgotten. 
I thank God for Jim Formby, an FFA teacher in a small town in Oklahoma who was willing to go teach Sunday school to third graders. Um, I know his name the day I die. What about Mr. Beck? I mean, he taught me more than I can even share. And that is, don't expect it to come from above out of clouds in perfection. It'll just well up in the imperfection of a mean old bastard. <laughs> that came to me. So I ask you a question, third advent, as we turn the corner, who are you? Are you the Christ? What account do you make of yourself? Are you willing for Christ to be born in you? Thank God for all the saints, Mr. Plexico's and Mr. Formby's and Mr. Betts, who have maybe even unconsciously, but indeed said, I'm willing. I'm willing. Ponder that. Thank you for coming and most gracious with your time. Amen.